Welcome to Season 2 of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting Podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Carrie H. was recorded on August 25th, 2022. Um, thank you, everyone, for having me. My name is Carrie. I'm an adult child okay. of an alcoholic and a, a dysfunctional family. Um, it's always a privilege to tell my story. I, um, I do share... Uh, the trait of perfectionism, as, as m- many other fellow travelers have shared with me. Um, so I plan to share my experience, strength, and hope um, in an organized fashion. However, I did pray before the meeting, and I did hand my will, life, and story over to a power greater than me, including telling the story. <laughs> so um, it's going to come out the way it needs to come out, which is was is really just fine. Um, so I was the youngest of six siblings. We were all born in the same town. We were all born in the same hospital. Um, so immediately my mind thinks, um, it goes to codependency. (laughs) Um, there are, however, about 15 years between the oldest child and me. And all six of us are, um, there, there are three different marriages that, uh, resulted in all six of us. So my mother and my father were married previously and had children and then they divorced and then they got together and then they had me. My father is an alcoholic, um, adult child for sure. Um, he was really badly abused, um, as a child. In fact, um, the one story I remember that I, that I remind myself of when I'm thinking of my father is that he was born in 49. So when he was three or four, his mom cut part of his ear off and was abusing him in other ways. Um, she was trying to give him a haircut. He was squirming in the chair, you know, like a toddler does. And, um, her aunt, um, called the police for child abuse. Now they did not have an organized child protective services at that time. So in my mind, that's significant Then he was being abused so much that family interfered because that was a time when you did not interfere and it was, you know, spoil, uh, spoil the child if you spared the rod. And so, um, you know, that plays out in his story that, that also played out in my story. My mother would tell me she grew up in a very um, happy home. She did have a good relationship with her, with her dad, my grandfather. Um, but my grandmother um, grew up in a small farming community where her brothers passed away. So she was sent out to the fields to work with her father, my great grandfather. So my grandmother had no nurturing whatsoever. She was treated like one of the boys until she was old enough to marry and was sent off to marry. So, um, that set my mom up for a lot of the ACA traits and, uh, she struggles with addiction to prescription medication and she does have chronic pain. Um, but 
what I found out going through my ACA journey is that she also struggled with eating disorders. So we're all ACAs, all the siblings. Um, growing up, my father drank pretty heavily during uh, challenging times. And my mother uh, still takes medication to check out if she's, if it's, um, things are just getting too heavy emotionally. She just doesn't want to be there. And so um, it was really good for me to go through the yellow workbook and go back to my parents, my parents' parents, and then their parents, you know, as far back as we can remember. And um, that can be challenging. Of course, when I went through this, (laughs) I was looking very specifically for the traits and the addictions. And I had already gotten the pink cloud of telling my family about recovery and they had already told me they didn't want anything to do with it. So by the time I got to ACA, I knew that I I couldn't tell them why I wanted that information, but my higher power gave me a great idea. Um, We would just have a family dinner once, um, once a week. I have a couple of boys, um, Benjamin's six and Eddie is 12. And so when we would have dinners with them, I would ask my mom and my dad about what they remember growing up stories. Uh, what, what about their parents? What about their siblings? And they would just share stories and I would listen and I would pick out the traits. And that really helped me see because some traits skip generations and some addictions skip generations. And um, when the line in the big red book and the other literature says you couldn't have turned out any different. I did not want to fully accept that until I understood that tree. So if, if you're thinking about doing that part of the step or you feel intimidated or feel like it doesn't matter because it's in the past, it made a difference for me. Um, showed me where I came from for sure. So my parents had to, you know, they each had a marriage that did not work. They were young and, um, they both were come from dysfunctional families. So they didn't know how to parent healthy. Um, so my siblings, you know, can be a little wackadoo. And I think they felt a lot of shame that their marriage didn't work. My dad was especially, you know, being Catholic, he was not, you know, he was not allowed to go back to the Catholic church after he divorced. Um, so they got together And they decided to have just one more child, just one more. And that pretty much like started the codependency and a lot of the ACA traits because in their minds, um, and they have said this in not so many words, I've been able to put it together because of the work I've done in this program, but they felt like failures in parenting and if they could get it right with me, then they maybe wouldn't be such bad parents after all. So that set me up big time to succeed and to show the world how great a parents they are and to prove to themselves that they really weren't failures. <laughs> and um, so anyway, you'll hear more about how that worked out uh, shortly. But the other thing that they did, and they said often, um, and in fact, they continued to say it until I had enough uh, courage in the program to tell them to stop saying that, which was that I was, I'm going to call it their old age insurance policy. Um, 
basically they felt because I'm the only child between them that I would be the only child responsible for taking care of both of them in their older age. They thought the other siblings would split them up, put them in different nursing homes. And um, so then, so then my role would be to take care of them. And I have played some of that role, but I've been able to do it with boundaries thanks to this program. So um, there was a lot growing up. So there was drinking with my father. I never knew if he was going to be the fun, happy dad or if he was going to be the raging dad. You know, sometimes he would come home from work and be totally disconnected. Like, and I don't know, I didn't know what disconnected was when I was a child. I just knew like, you know, he wasn't talkative. That's fine. And then he would like step on a Lego and just explode. And it's very difficult even now for me to be on the receiving end of explosive rage and not think that I caused it or should cure it or, you know, anything, um, or that I should be responsible for fixing it. Um, so I know I took that in and my mother played these manipulating games with me, um, particularly when I got older. Um, so she was happy to be a mom when she was happy to be a mom, but when she was tired of being a mom, when she was working and come home and maybe I had a fever or something was going on. She was, she was just done. She was like, just get away from me. And, um, what's interesting is I don't have a lot of memories, but I remember aspects. If someone will tell me a story, I start to see, um, visualize it. And then if I see a picture, then I'm like, oh yeah. Okay. I do remember that. Um, but a lot of what happened in my childhood I know happened because I regurgitated it as an adult with my own children. And so um, sometimes I'll say this funny thing with my sponsors, like I opened my mouth and my mother came out. And those are the, those are the things that I, um, I continue to have to work on. Um, there was a lot of fear with my parents growing up. So there was fear of loss. Um, neither of my parents came from very much money. And so they just scrimped and saved whatever they could, but it could always be taken away. Um, there was always a fear of failure. Um, my dad had very poor self-esteem issues. I think my mom did a little better, but she had had three kids by the time she was 18. Um, <clears throat> so she really never got to be a, a young adult or a, a young or really towards the end of her childhood. Um, you know, she was a mom. Um, there was also fear of success. And I didn't recognize that until I first got in the program and started reading the, um, promises. Um, and I thought how weird you would have a fear of success. Well, but I did work around that. Um, how will I ever live up to their expectations? And if I do too well in an area, will their expectation bar keep rising? And that was a very, very common thread in in my family, especially since perfectionism uh, played out a lot. I mean, they just wanted me to be the model child so that they could just feel okay with themselves. And so I would, they'd want me to, I'd make a C in class and they want me to make a B and I make a B. And then they said, well, you could make an A and I'd make an A and they're like, you could make an A plus. So I'd try to make an A plus and they'd be like, you could make an A plus plus. And it just was never enough. I 
specifically remember a time in high school when um, I, I think I took art in my senior year because I wanted to blow off class. Like if I slept in, I wouldn't fail. Um, cause I was really getting tired of the pressure and I was really ready to just snap and be the, the rebellious child. I was, I was getting close to that time in my life. And, um, we, I took art, I did well and my painting won some local competition and I was shocked cause it was the first painting I had ever done. And I remember standing there and like, for me as a dysfunctional child growing up, I think I would have felt proud, except when it came to some of those things, um, some of those feelings, I had shut down and disassociated so much. I can't tell you if I felt proud. It would make sense. I think a normal person would feel proud that they won. I think what I remember is just feeling awkward. Uh, there was a lot of tension around me. <clears throat> I was feeling some fear of success that they were going to expect, you know, more paintings every month, you know, do better and better and better. Um, and a little bit of feeling like an imposter. Like I didn't know how I made a cool painting and I didn't know that it just was based on judges that, you know, didn't know us and just liked it. Um, and what I remember was my mom looking at that painting with me and, and saying, you know, it would be a little better if you had just done this differently, you know? And I specifically remember hearing this voice in my head say, how can I be better than first place? <laughs> and, um, but that, that was very, very normal going on in my home. Um, my parents used religious abuse a lot to control. Um, and it was interesting, <clears throat> try not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but when I was young, I was friends with some, you know, little girl in the apartment complex, I'm sure, but they were Jehovah witness. So I think by the time we put the Christmas tree up in the window, it was like, <clears throat> wasn't able to play with her. And I don't know if that's actually what happened. That's what my parents told me happened. Um, but I remember feeling the frustration because there was a, a bond even at like six years old, seven years old. And so um, I verbalized that I wanted to go to a church that believed in Jesus and Santa Claus. Like, you know, I, I'm making this up, right? I'm pretty little. And um, they took that as a cue to get back into religion. And they nosedived into it. I mean, my dad is an alcoholic addict. so. He jumped into it head first. My mom did. And so suddenly we completely identified with religion and the church. And that's where all of our friends were. That's where all of my parents' friends were. And there was a lot of this superiority feeling. And this is also when the, if you behave good, then God will, you know, bless you. And if you act poorly, then God's going to punish you. And I still in working on this program around when bad things happen to me, you know, I want to inventory, what did I do to screw it up this time? And that's not how my higher power works. I had to fire my higher power and get a new one. Um, but I, you know, the, knowing the origin is very helpful for me. The other thing that that set up for me again, was that now I was responsible for my 
parents' sense of, you know, religion and connection to God and the pedestal, right? <clears throat> so um, that played out really badly <laughs> later, later on. But we were, we were just this average American church going family, super pressure to do everything perfectly, to look good. Um, but there was, there was a time when my dad was super high on religion and, you know, I think it was a combination of that. And I think it could have also been him experiencing, um, what I hear in other program rooms called the pink cloud. When you first start getting in touch with a power greater than yourself, whether it's from a religious source or not. Um, and I remember him being really happy. I remember him playing the guitar. I remember him swinging me around while he was singing and he was just joy filled. And that's the only time in his life I ever remember him being that way. Um, so I try to keep that memory, you know, um, when I review my, my life or tell my story, because it's, an, it's an important part of my dad that just didn't get to play out very long. Um, the other things that went on in our home <clears throat> based on what my parents grew up with is a lot of sexual exposure. And, um, I will be careful how I word this because I mean, it triggers me. Um, there was a lot of explicit language. There were a lot of innuendos. There was exposure to porn in a way where it was like a forbidden fruit. It was okay for the guys. Um, it was talked about a lot. There were a lot of jokes and, um, what I learned and I found some of this out a little bit later, um, was that women were here on the planet to, um, be of service to men in that way and to have children. And you, know, we don't have much value beyond that. So that played out in two ways, right? So it was my job to be desirable, even, even kind of not young as in a pageantry child, but uh, young as in when you get older, this is what is expected of you kind of suggestion. And then the other part was uh, eating disorder because my parents didn't know how to eat healthy. They were raised on a farm. So, you know, they knew about like well-balanced diets, but it was just the product of living on a farm. Um, but we lived in the city. So we had fast food and we had microwave dinners and all kinds of things. Um, but there was a constant obsession with diets, being skinny. Um, this is where, I mean, my mom was 72 when she told me that she used to be bulimic. I had no idea. Um, <clears throat> so moving a little more in my relationship with my mom, um, she has a very low tolerance for, she loves babies, but once you get beyond the baby stage, she has kind of low tolerance. And I've seen that played out with both of my children, which is painful, but that's, um, just who she is. When I was about six in that apartment complex that we grew up in, and um, I need to precede some of this, so I'm going to go back because it's coming up. We lived in Illinois where all of my family lived. My dad lost his job. They had to walk away from the house. We left to Tennessee for a prospective job my dad was going to have and keep and get back on our feet. And within, I think, six to 10 weeks, he got laid off again. So we spent a short time being homeless. 
Um, I did not know this. My parents never admit to it. I asked them, they're like, no, but doing some therapy and remembering some things and the memory came back when a couple Christmases ago, our kitchen sink uh, was out of order and it was the holidays. So it was hard to find a plumber. So um, we had hot water. So I just brought the dishes to the bathtub and washed them in the bathtub. And that's when I remembered washing in a truck stop, sleeping in a car. I have no idea how long we did that, but I will tell you that that was a pivotal moment for my parents. Um, there was a lot of turmoil with them, a lot of fighting. I think there was a lot of, um, drinking and drug abuse at that time too. I mean, they were stressed out and I remembered being what I identified as later as an adult, um, being depressed. So I was about six and I had a cabbage patch doll with a stroller. I pushed it out to the apartment complex uh, drive where the parking and stuff was. And I sat on the curb and I was waiting. I was waiting for someone to drive by and run over my little dolly (laughs) so that, um, so I could cry. So I could have a reason. Cause that was the thing in our family. You need to have a reason to cry. Or if you're you're crying and you don't have a reason, I'll give you a reason, which I never needed that. Right. But apparently, um, so I look back on that. I'm like that, that little girl was going through a lot. And that little girl was really sad. Um, jump forward just a little bit at six. I had an older boy coax me off the playground. Um, I remember him taking me to his bedroom and hiding me. Uh, I remember him taking my shorts off. I remember hearing my mother scream and sitting at, you know, screaming for me, hollering for me, trying to find me. Um, I remember his mom saying, you know, get her out of here. Mom's looking for her. I left. I ran to my mom. I remember being scared. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I was, I was young. I didn't know about private parts. We didn't talk about, you know, they, they mentioned stuff, but they never put the connection for me together. So I had no idea what was going on. And my mother was furious. Now, what I know today is she was terrified that she would never see me again. And she was angry, but that fear translated to anger, translated to breaking a wooden spoon over my ass, actually two. And um, I didn't know if I remembered that, but my older sister definitely remembered that and reminded me. And the painful part was my mom would tell that story my entire life about how I was a little shit, (laughs) ran away from her. And I, and she fixed me by, you know, breaking those wooden spoons over my ass. And I remember at times asking her, like, why would you use a wooden spoon to spank me instead of your hand? She's like, cause I don't want my hand to hurt. So thank God for ACA. I'm like, yeah, I think that's, you know, a problem. Um, what I was able to do later with my mom is ask her, please stop telling that story. And then I asked her if she knew what happened to me. So I thought you just ran off with the kid. I'm like, it was not that uh, I was coaxed from an older boy. And my, one of my older sisters uh, cooperated my story. She was like, yeah, that's, she's like, I remember that little boy. And I said, when I ran to you, I was terrified. And then you punished the shit out of me. (laughs) And I was like, so I was like, we don't, can't go back in time. And she was full of that. Well, I didn't know. And, you know, I can't go back and fix it. And I said, I'm not asking you to go back and fix it, but I want you to stop telling that story. Like I was this naughty little kid and you fixed me and I never ran away from you again. Cause that's not really what happened. And we made peace. And that is a direct result of this program. Um, 
when I was 14, I got my first boyfriend. And so then I knew what to do, right? Whatever he wanted, um, which is what happened. So I lost my virginity at that time. What I didn't know, I no one had conversations with me about, um, and maybe my parents didn't know at the time, but his older brother that was 18 decided he was, you know, going to take advantage of me being in the house um, and drunk as well. Now, when the rape happened, I didn't know what to do. I was so extremely desperate for any male attention. Um, And in my mind, it was just trauma and shock and fog. Um, But what I knew was there was fight or flight, right? So I didn't fight him off because I didn't really know what the hell was going on. I was drunk. Um, But I also didn't run away. Since that time, I have learned that there's freeze and fawn, which are completely suitable survival skills. Um, I laid there and did whatever he wanted because I was afraid that, um, you know, I might not make it if I didn't. And, but not knowing that at that young age, the following story played out. So my parents found out what happened. It was someone in the church told my parents, your daughter is a slut (laughs) and slept with these two brothers and has been skipping school in Sunday school. So, okay. And then my parents have a fallout with the Sunday school couple and they decide we're not going to that church anymore. So complete isolation now because our only friends were church friends and we can't be friends with them because they think I'm a slut. And it's all my fault. And my parents abandon religion and they abandon God. And it's my fault because I'm a slut. And nobody asked me what happened or like, why would you do that? Or were you attracted to both? Or uh uh-uh. it was the girl that was supposedly my friend told her mom and her mom blurted it out in Sunday school. And then they were like, it must be true. And then I was in trouble and they put the lockdown on me for a couple of years. Um, and I didn't really understand what had gone on. And since we never had a conversation about it, the worst damage of that really wasn't the night being raped at all. The worst damage of that whole event was believing for 30 something years until I was in recovery that I did not ask for that and that I wasn't a slut and that. 14 to 18 years old is statutory rape, no matter how you frame it. And that I was not responsible for destroying my parents' friendships and identity and relationship with God. It was just, um, you know, stuff that happens in dysfunctional families. So thank God for this program that I got to release that burden and um, do the sex inventory and reframe my personal sexual identity especially as a married woman. Um, I want to mention that due to that and due to my relationship with my dad and the violent relationship I've had with my father, um, the physical abuse that has gone on when I was young, when I got out of the house, he didn't put his hands on me again, but um, had a lot of anger towards men. And with that played a couple of roles, um, being afraid of men all the time, 
And fear of men, it can be different. It can look like a, um, a scared doe. Um, it can also look like a super aggressive woman. <laughs> and so um, both, I would say, are afraid. They're just showing it differently. But for me, it's more of the aggressor. Um, it's more like the scaredy cat puffing up, like, you better not mess with me. Um, this program helped me identify that. And I've been able to address it and face that fear. And I've also utilized things like martial arts to help me gain confidence in myself and then just get to the root of um, the issues I've had with food and binging and some of the beliefs around if I feel like I'm, if I, if I'm an overweight woman, I won't be attracted, you know, men won't be attracted to me. Therefore, I'll be less of a victim. Um, when in reality, having self-compassion and self-love and just taking care of my body is, is really the goal. So, um, I've, I've really been able to work through in this program. So, um, I started drinking and experimenting with drugs at 14 after the trauma by 17 years old, I was sneaking into bars. Um, when I was 23, my drinking escalated and then, um, I met my husband at 28. Now I dated, I thought was a lot of different guys. They were not, they were all my father or they were all my mother. Um, I had a very specific type. It was either I was the dominant one or they were the dominant one. Um, I would, because my father was physically and verbally and emotionally abusive to my mother and she's a woman and I'm a woman, I thought I would attract a man that would abuse me, but I didn't, I turned into my father. So I would go back and forth between an aggressive guy that was edgy and dangerous and the bad boy or a really shy guy that I would totally walk all over, wipe my feet on and just um, use intimidation and abusive behavior to control him and manipulate him. So I would uh, go back and forth. When I met my husband, he wasn't my type. I went out with him for three months. I didn't even think I was that serious about him. Um, even when I married him, there was like, okay, I'm attracted to the emotional stability because I'm all over the place. I'm like an untreated ACA and alcoholic. You know, I'm, I'm having a rough go of life and everything's happening to me, total victim. And he was just even steady. Um, but I have to say, I'm so glad I went with God's guidance during that time, whether I was seeking God's guidance or not. Um, because in recovery, now that I need the support here, um, to go through the really deep stuff and not mask it with drugs and alcohol, there's no one on the planet better for me. Um, when I was 30, I hit my rock bottom. I had a son. Um, my oldest son, Eddie was two years old. I was, um, <laughs> manipulating my mother, my enabler. Um, I was drinking and partying and supposedly studying for the GRE. In fact, I had done so poorly on the GRE. I showed up at my best friend's house crying and I was crying so, um, so much that she had to tell her boss that like, she's like, oh, my friend came by her grandma died. <laughs> it's like over a test. Um, but that's just what I obsessed over and never thought it was alcohol. But when I hit that bottom, she was the one that took me to my first meeting. 
Um, and my first meeting in my own territory back home was a smokers meeting. So my husband immediately was like, look, if you're going to go to AA, go to AA. But if you're going to lie to me and go to the bar, just go to the stupid bar. You know, one thing he never did was uh, throw out my alcohol and tell me I was a drunk. He just let me hit my bottom and was hoping I wasn't in a car accident, hurting myself or others. Um, I did very well in AA because I'm an overachiever and a perfectionist. And, um, you know, I did relapse a couple of times, but I tried really hard to stay there. I learned things like look for the similarities, but I still had major, major issues with relationships and people. And I just couldn't seem to get along with people. So I got into Codependence Anonymous that helped a whole, whole lot. And with that program, there were some similarities in language. So somebody gave me the uh, traits. And I read over those and I was like, oh gosh. And I wasn't sure if I was an adult child or not, but I will tell you that um, when I read the chapter about the workplace, it was like being, that was it for me. I knew. So I actually got into ACA because I had a terrible case of imposter syndrome and I was just trying to keep, keep me from like sabotaging my job and getting fired. And I didn't feel like I deserved to be there anyway. So. <clears throat> I'm very grateful for my AA and CODA recovery. AA recovery in the early stages was really different for me. It was all about detoxing, detoxing, 90 meetings in 90 days. You're replacing meetings with drinking. But when I meet people who've heard of ACA but haven't been in there, um, I don't usually recommend that they hit it like the detox. Um, and the reason I feel this way is because my first year, I went to meetings regularly, you know, if not once a week, once every other week, there was so much information that was different than what I grew up with that I, I literally just needed time to digest. And it wasn't about detoxing for me as much as it was allowing my denial to break because I would still say in CODA, I would say, oh, me and my mother are enmeshed. But other than that, we have a happy family. I had no idea we were dysfunctional. I mean, it really flipped the coin on me, um, on its head. And, um, as much as I want to be recovered and done and get my graduation cap and not have to do this anymore. Um, I think if I had received all the recovery I've had in a year or two, I would probably die. So, um, I'm to, I I'm very sensitive about denial breaking. I always want my denial to break immediately. It doesn't, it takes time. And there's, uh, there's a quote by Melody Beatty in some of her texts um, that denial is like a blanket that people hang on to and you don't want to yank off the blanket. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Um, that doesn't actually work. If the person's cold, they need cover. So the best way to break denial is to create a warm environment where they no longer need the blanket and they slower, lower the blanket. They, they lower it themselves. And that really was a very true statement for me, even now when I can still be in denial about things, um, being gentle and compassionate is the way for me to break through that denial. So I can get, you know, it's aha moment or it's the, um, discovery part of recovery so that I can start making different choices or see what's going on and have that clarity. Um, emotions came up more in ACA than any of my other programs. I will say I needed to be totally sober in order to do ACA because, uh, 
these emotions are intense and they hit like a tsunami and there's not much for me to do, but just hang on. Um, what I want to do is stop the water or swim to a boat or save other people in the water. Or, um, you know, I am a scientist by trade, so I want to figure out how the tsunami happened so I can make it stop and make it never happen again, or at least, you know, be prepared. And none of that works because I've tried it all. None of it works for me. Um, what I've learned is if it's hysterical, it's historical. So if my emotional intensity is so intense and it doesn't quite fit the scenario, like they gave me the wrong cheeseburger at, you know, McDonald's or something, I'm going to throw it at somebody. It has nothing to do with that cheeseburger. It has everything to do with something that happened in my past that is coming up to be dealt with or just felt, even if it's not dealt with, just felt and acknowledged. So now that I've been working with fellow travelers and I've worked in the um, loving parent guidebook um, workbook, I'm able to follow the rabbit hole, which is what's the worst thing that could happen? What's the best thing that could happen? Uh, what do you believe about this? Why do you believe that? Where did this belief come from? And kind of like, I would say the therapy type questions. Um, I did not do that for myself in the beginning at all. I had other people who had uh, time in the program do that for me. And then when I developed the loving parent voice um, through this program and identifying the inner child and the inner teen, I was able to ask myself those questions, but I still, I don't go in the neighborhood of my mind alone with ACA issues. I still very much call fellow travelers and rely on the program. Um, the other thing when intense emotions come up is I watch for signs like, am I taking care of myself? Am I getting enough sleep? Is there something big going on? And that's why this is coming up. Like, when's the last time you were at a meeting? When's the last time you called a fellow traveler? And then um, the third thing that I really try to do is seek shelter, which is a lot, this program, or just gentleness and taking care of myself. And then I sit and I just let the water crash over me because, um, if it washes me out to sea, the tide will bring me back. And I've been through enough emotional tsunamis to know that that will happen. Um, but the most important thing is I have this natural tendency um, from my dysfunctional childhood to want to get rid of those emotions and stuff them with addictions or whatever. And it could be now it could be shopping or food or people or anything. Um, but the important part is that I need to feel this if it's going to get healed. Um, and the reason that it's so intense is because it's stuff so long. So I try to remind myself, you know, just go ahead and feel it now. Cause it might come back worse. Um, so in the first year I just did meetings when I did the step study, it took me over a year. I think it was like 18 months. I worked the steps, the yellow workbook steps with, uh, both a group, which gave me perspective of how other people were, um, processing and, and, uh, interpreting the text. But I also worked with a fellow traveler, um, just one-on-one -on -one because there was a lot in there that, um, I wasn't willing to share with the whole group. Um, or we just didn't have the time to get into the depth. <clears throat> so that was really, really important. Um, the loving parent guidebook. So, so I came into ACA and uh, 2018. And then I started the loving parent guidebook in 2021 when it came out. And that has been um, a real game changer 
There were times during my 12 steps though, that I wished I had a sense of what the loving parent guidebook has to offer. So who is your inner child? Who is your inner teen? Who is your inner critic? Um, you know, which one is speaking at one time or they're all talking at once. And then the, and then developing the language for the loving parent, for the soothing. Um, the fourth step for me was brutal. Um, it was hard because there was so much that happened in my childhood that wasn't my fault, but there was still so much guilt and shame around that. I would feel so angry when I would inventory and some of it would be angry. It happened to me in the victim stance, but there was another victim stance of like, how dare you ask me to blame myself? Now the book never asked me to blame myself, but that's what was coming up. Um, so when I work with a newcomer, I always give them the options, you know, do you want to do a loving parent or you want to try the steps if they've been going to meetings regularly? Um, and what I've seen work, you know, pretty well is at least starting the loving parent and getting familiar with, you know, I say the characters in our head, but it's parts of us to identify where that's coming from, because the steps are, you know, you're getting deeper and deeper into, um, those feelings and those experiences and, um, you know, today when I do more exploring, I need to identify who's feeling fear or who's feeling angry, or is that the critical voice? Um, I know they call it the critical parent, but I fired that critical parent, like quick into that step study. <laughs> I'm like, you're no longer a parent. You're demoted. Now you're just a voice. <laughs> um, I did make peace with my critical voice though. And I, today, what I understand is <sighs> that critical voice was there to try to keep me alive and to keep me from being rejected and abandoned like I was. And, um, so we've made peace and, and we live in almost harmony most of the time together, but, um, you know, but I, I, it wasn't the beginning of the book. I assure you, it was like the very last chapters. We finally made peace. Um, some of the greatest things that I have learned from this program is self-love and self-compassion. And it's so funny. I was just sharing after work today and it hit me like, oh, I have to share this tonight if God's willing. Um, there's a part in that loving parent book where it says, this book is not here to make you better, a better person. And I wrote a little dash like, damn it. Because <laughs> that's all I'm here for, right? To get better, to not be so crazy, to be like normal people. Um, but what it said is, instead, it's here to teach you how to love yourself. I didn't think I really wanted that. But apparently, that's how I get healthy, is taking care of myself, being compassionate with myself. Um, there's a part in that book I wrote down, and I have it on my mirror, which is care is approval. And I'm a big approval um, addict. I am a people pleaser. and um, now I know that taking care of myself is self-approval. And when I take care of my children and my husband, that is approving of them. And so, um, you know, that's promises one and two right there. So a couple of things monumental getting to know my inner child and my inner teen is when I identify who is acting out, I'm seeing with more clarity as far as like, what are the behaviors that I want to stop doing, <laughs> you know? And, and this is the part where it's like actors rather than reactors, but I have to know who's 
you know, who's speaking, who's, who's throwing the temper tantrum. Um, and then that actors, not reactors really for me is promise 10. Um, but then also having relationships with other people and sharing vulnerability and apologizing, um, when I've done something, um, you know, and taking responsibility, some of those with promises four five and eight, you know, that is really important identifying those inner voices and then to be able to relax and let go not have so much fear around life and relationships and what's going to happen with my kids and what's going to happen with work. Um, you know, those are promises six, seven, and 12 for me. Um, the second part is uncovering the lost Carrie, the little Carrie Lynn, the little girl. Um, those parts got pushed down so far. And I remember the early days, it looked like, let's try to paint again. Um, there was a thing with my piano where I played piano as a child. I played it naturally by ear. I was like four. My mom was making me out to be a piano star. And we had a knockdown drag out when I was a teenager. And I was like, I'm never playing the piano again. I think I messed up on Moonlight Sonata. Like I played one page twice or something at a recital. Wasn't really a big deal. But I didn't play the piano for like 20 years. I was punishing my mother and it was recovery promise three was like, mm, I was punishing myself. So I started playing piano in this program again, and I love it. And I play for friends. I was able to play for my mother, which is huge because I wasn't afraid of her criticism anymore. Um, finding my inner voice and not just hearing that voice, but able to like identify what I need and want versus let someone else define that for me. That's promise nine. Um, and then incorporating like the inner, the integration that they talk about. Um, I'll just speak about one, which is, um, I'm a daydreamer. So I, I disassociate a bit and I can be in my head and I can come up with all these stories and it wasn't something I was willing to give up completely. And so I had kind of an agreement to be present with my family at work with friends but if I'm exercising or swimming or taking a walk, yep, you can daydream. And what I worked out with my inner teen who really likes to daydream um, is that maybe we could write some of those stories down. And so I started my first book over the Christmas holiday, this past one. And I wrote it in like six months. I'm like, oh my God, I wrote my first book. It's like a, you know. I don't know, 170,000 words, which I think is kind of like the Hobbit's a long book like that too. So there's a lot of editing that'll happen before it, anything happens with it. But the point, what is not publishing the book, the point is writing the book and then it'll take as long as it takes to edit it. And then I may or may not do anything with it, but it's just getting in touch with that part of me. Um. I need to mention, I've only got a few minutes left, but this power greater than myself, because none of this is possible. I didn't mention God very much, mostly it's because I have been and can be still very angry with God. Um, when bad things happen to me, I can feel very punished. And that's the old God. And it's still has its hooks in sometimes. What I've learned in other programs in this program is that for me, God is to be experienced and not explained. And so there's a couple of experiences I'd like to share. Um, visiting an aunt several years back, she was getting put on hospice, was taking a walk. 
and there was a migration happening. Now, not always do we get to witness that. It depends on like the altitude that the birds fly, but whatever they were, geese or some kind of large um, birds that they were flying low enough. It was a full two hours of watching thousands and thousands and thousands of birds fly over my head at a great distance. Couldn't ID them, but I know I'm a bird person, but feeling so insignificant. I'm in Irving, Texas, like random trip. And I'm experiencing this with a power greater than myself. Um, I write those out and I remember them when I'm not feeling very connected to God. Um, another instant was a, a very serious incident with my son at a daycare where the police were involved and child protective services. There's like a daycare side of that were involved and there was so much coming at me and I was feeling so much and I was so overloaded and everybody wanted me to go up there with, you know, pitchforks and, and, um, and torches. And what I did instead was I brought my son, he was like two into this bubble with me and God. And I, we didn't do anything but take care of ourselves. And I prayed and we just stayed in this bubble for three days until my head cleared and he felt safe. And then I was able to take action, let other people watch the kid. I don't know how I knew to do that. Um, that was not something my mom ever did. So that had to be a power greater than myself. And then the third one was this obsession I've had for several years. My husband's a veteran, so he possibly will get 100% disability. And I'm, I'm a scientist and I, I get the pleasure of working with birds and sea turtles. And it's, um, it's very exciting and great work. But um, the the temptation for workaholism is very strong because I work with workaholics all day long. Gentle and um, do you have to cut me off? Well, or can, can I finish, finish my up. story? Yeah, you can finish up. Okay, I'll finish it and then I'm done. Um, what I was obsessing about was getting uh, a chance to not have to be a mom and focus on work. And it wasn't happening. And I was getting more and more upset. And the two things that my higher power revealed to me when the time was right, the denial broke, was that if I chose to be a workaholic, I would miss out on my children being young. And I would never get that back. And there was an old belief there from my dad, which is mothers aren't worth anything. They don't bring home any money and they don't have any value. So sometimes that you know, prayer of what I want. I'm so grateful. I don't always get what I think I want that higher power is there to guide me. So, um, I think that's ending it on a high note for me. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share my story. Sorry, I went over a minute, but, um, I hope somebody got something from it. I sure certainly did. So thank, and thanks again for having me.